warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. With Scott and with Stephen this week. Good morning, Stephen. Hello, mate. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm quite well, thank you. How's uh, you doing over there? No, not so bad. Not so bad. Nice, quiet Sunday. Um, in the marvellous world of of podcasting, it's it's early September here. We're recording, but this should be going out possibly early October, which traditionally is the, the horror month for most podcasts. Um, spooky month. The spooky month. Scary vegetables. Um, kids <laughs> legally begging on doorsteps. That sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah. And <laughs> we've we've sort of put together, or going to put together, a couple of episodes in celebration of of Halloween, and and we're going to start off quite gently this week with it's more of a devilish, devilish yes. comedy. I think we could describe it. Uh, back to 1960, is it 1967? Bedazzled. It is, yeah, 67, yeah. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Your selection for this episode. Right, and we'll be back after this. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, or Pete and Dud as we know them, one of the finest comic duos that Britain has ever produced. Certainly not brought about through the music hall traditions of, say, Morecambe and Wise, but a unique pairing with a unique sense of humour that dared to take a satirical sideswipe at all the political nonsense that was going on throughout the 1960s. Peter Cook was a middle-class public schoolboy from Torquay, whose father was a colonial administrator in Nigeria. Moore was brought up on a council estate in Dagenham, his father an electrician, his mother a typist. Dudley Moore was born with a withered leg and a club foot. When his mother's reaction on being introduced to baby Dudley was, this isn't my child, I don't want him, take him away. He was bullied at school on account of his deformities, but he found solace in music, loved playing the church organ, and he won a scholarship to Oxford where he appeared in reviews. Peter Cook wrote sketches and performed comedy while at Cambridge, and the two men first came together when a producer set out to create a comedy supergroup, consisting of two of the best performers from Oxford and Cambridge for a show at the Edinburgh Festival. They met at an Italian restaurant in London in January 1960. The main thing I remember was the food, Cook remarked later. It was revolting. The show, Beyond the Fringe, was an overnight success. It poked fun at establishment figures such as the Prime Minister Harold Macmillan and the Royal Family, and the age of satire truly was born. (music) 
how will it be, this end of which you have spoken, Brother Amen? Aye, how will it be? Well, it will be as twere a mighty rending in the sky, you see, and the mountains will sink and the valleys shall rise, and great shall be the tumult thereof, I should think. <laughs> will the, uh, will the veil of the temple be rent in twain? Well, the veil of the temple's always rather dodgy. Oh. <laughs> But it should be rent asunder about two minutes before we see the sign of the manifest flying uh, whatnots up in the sky. <laughs> and will there be a mighty wind then? Certainly there will be a mighty wind, if the word of God is anything to go by. <laughs> and will this wind be so mighty as to lay low the mountains of the earth? I can't hear a blind word you say. <laughs> You're speaking too softly for the human ear, which is what I'm equipped with, so you'll have to speak a bit louder, I think. No better, is it? I ask you to speak louder, you speak softer. A strange reaction from a follower. Or perhaps I'm very old-fashioned. Perhaps I'm very old-fashioned, expecting you to speak louder. Yes, you are. Come along, come along. Come along, we haven't got all day to the end of the world. We've heard that bit. <laughs> We've all heard Will This Wind. We've heard Will This Wind enough, thank you. You don't want to hear Will This Wind again. Will This Wind what is what we want to know. What Will This Wind? Don't say Will This Wind again. That'd be a most tedious experience. Really. What Will This Wind? Will This Wind be so mighty? Be so mighty, yes. As to lay low. As to lay low. The mountains. The what? Earth. Earth, yes. Will this wind be so mighty as to lay low the mountains of the earth? No. It will, it will not be quite as mighty as that. That is why we've come up on the mountain, you stupid nit, to be safe. Up here we shall be safe, safe as houses. The show, as well as taking the West End by storm, wowed audiences on Broadway as part of the all-conquering British invasion. But after a brief spell pursuing their own separate solo careers, in January 1965 they were commissioned to produce a TV series of six shows, the standard arrangement at the time for the BBC. But even then, pairing of the two was almost accidental. Late the previous year, Dudley Moore had been assigned a one-hour special, and Peter Cook was one of his guests. The comic chemistry between the two of them was so immediately apparent that the BBC decided to cast them as a team. Hey! <laughs> hey! <laughs> Oh, look, there you are. What do you mean, good? Well, I'm looking at the casting out of the money lenders. I don't care about that. I've been looking for you for the last half hour. 
We said we'd meet in front of the Flemish masters. No, we didn't. God, we never said anything of the sort. When I last saw you, you were in the Pissarro, weren't you? That's right. Well, I said I'd meet outside the abstract. We'd go through the old Greco, up the Van Eyck, and I'd see you in front of the bloody Rubin. No. <laughs> I said I was going to go round the Velasquez, through the abstract, up the impressionist, and then in front of the Flemish masters. No, you didn't, Dad. It doesn't matter anyway. Here, yeah, I have a sandwich. My feet are killing me. What's that got to do with a sandwich? <laughs> Nothing, I just said it afterwards, that's Well, you shouldn't say things like that to girl, it could confuse a stupid person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Pete, I reckon, uh, I reckon there's a lot of rubbish in this gallery, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Well, not only rubbish, Dad, there's a lot of muck about. Yeah. I've been looking all over the place for something good. Yeah. I've been looking for that lovely green gypsy lady. You know the one with yeah. Percy Corey done? <laughs> With a lovely shining skin. Where is she? Nowhere. Nowhere. So I went up to the manager. I said, yeah, I got him by the car. I said, here. Yeah. I said, here. Threaten me, You didn't spit sandwich at him, did you? Sorry, Pete. Blimey. I'm sorry about that. No, I said, here. Yeah, you'll do it again if you're not careful. I said, wait. What do you say, Dad? I said, where's that bloody Chinese flying horse in? What do you say? He said, get out. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to run up the impressionists for half an hour, and I had yeah. Yeah. You know, what I can't understand, frankly, Pete, is that... Uh, there's not a Vernon Ward gallery in here. There's not a duck in the building. There's no Peter Scott. There's no Vernon Ward. Not a duck to be seen. Nothing. <laughs> no. And a marvellous thing about Vernon Ward is, of course, he's been doing ducks all his life. Well, he's had more ducks than you've had hot breakfast, Dad. <laughs> he's done plenty of ducks. If he's done anything, he's done ducks. Yeah. He's done ducks in all positions. Yeah. <laughs> ducks in the morning. Ducks. <laughs> The new series was called Not Only But Also, and it instantly became a huge hit. It was genuine must-see TV. In a country that only had three television stations, a hit of that magnitude reaches literally almost every sentient human being. Day after each episode, bus conductors would be rehearsing bits from it while they collected their fares. Its catchphrases were quoted ubiquitously. Its recurrent characters were almost as familiar as the Prime Minister. All right, Pete, then, are you? Not too bad, you yeah. know. Cheers. Not too bad, cheers. Oh. What have you been doing lately, then? Well, quiet, pretty quiet. Not yeah. been up to much. No. I had a spot of the usual trouble the other day. Oh, did you? What happened, then? Spot of the usual trouble. Well, yeah. I come home about half past eleven... We've been having a couple of drinks, remember? Right, yeah. I'll come home about half past eleven. Yeah. And, you know, I'm feeling a bit tired, so, yeah. you know, I thought I'd go to bed, you yeah. know, take my clothes off yeah. and so on, you know? Right, yeah. Well, don't you take your clothes off before you go to bed? Uh, no, I made that mistake this time. I uh, <laughs> got, got the wrong way around. Anyway, oh. I got into bed, uh, <laughs> settled down. I was just about, you know, reading the uh, Swiss Family Robinson. It's good, isn't it? It's a lovely book, yeah. Dad. It's a lovely book. And I got up to about page 483, second paragraph, yeah. when suddenly, bring, 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 bring. What's that? There's a phone going, oh. bring, bring. Yeah. <laughs> so I picked up the phone and 
you know who it was? Who? Bloody Betty Grable. <laughs> Calling Transatlantic. Bloody Betty Grable. I said, look, Betty, what do you think you're doing? Calling me up half past 11 at night. <laughs> she said, it's half past two in the afternoon over here. I said, I don't care what bloody time it is. There's no need to wake me up. She said, Peter, Peter, get on a plane. Come dance with me. Be mine tonight. I thought it was the middle of the afternoon. Yeah, what she probably meant was be mine tonight, tomorrow afternoon, our time. No, no didn't she mean tomorrow afternoon? And, uh, her yeah, time, her time anyway, be mine tonight, she said. I said, yeah. look, Betty, we've had our last, yeah. we've had our fun, but it's all over. Yeah. I said, stop pestering me, get back to Harry James, this trumpet. Yeah. Stop pestering me, I said. I slammed the phone down and said, stop pestering me. Shouldn't you said stop pestering me before you slammed the phone down? Slammed the phone down, down. I should have, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Well, it's funny to say that, because uh, a couple of nights ago, you remember we had a couple of drinks. Oh, I remember that, yeah. I'll come home, you know. Yeah. I was going to bed, felt a bit tired having a nightcap. Yeah, yeah of course you did. And uh, I just dropped in off nicely, and all yeah. of a sudden I heard this hollering in the kitchen. Hollering? And uh, screaming and banging on yeah. the door, you know, yeah. I thought I must have left the gas on. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, uh, I go down here, yeah. I fling open the door. You never guess, there's bloody Anna Magnani up to her knees in rice, screaming at me. Let's see more entrati and more he made poor favori. Italian. Italian, yeah. Italian. She was covered in mud, she grabbed hold of me, she pulled me all over the floor, yeah. she had one of them see-through blouses. Oh, all damp, showing yeah. everything. And she threw it. We rolled all over the floor. Yeah. I picked her up, I said, get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> you Italian thing. I said, get out of here. <laughs> I said, uh, you're don't Italian you... thing. Yeah, I it's said, good don't... Thing to call them. Yeah. I said, don't you come here and mess up my rice again, mate. I said, oh, no. <laughs> I had the same bloody trouble about two nights ago. Yeah. I come in, about half past eleven at night, we've been having a couple of drinks, I remember. <laughs> uh, I come in, I get into bed, you see, feeling quite sleepy. <sighs> I can feel the lids of my eyes beginning to droop, you yeah. see. A bit of the droop in the eyes. I was just about to drop off when suddenly tap, tap, tap at the bloody window pane. <laughs> I looked out, you know who it was? Who? Bloody Greta Garbo. <laughs> bloody Greta Garbo. Stark naked. <laughs> Save for a shorty nighty. She was hanging on to the window sill. <laughs> I can see, I can see, I can see her knuckles all white. She's saying, Peter, Peter, Hans Neuen, the Norwegian, the Thor. You know how these bloody Swedes go on. I said, Get out of it! Bloody Greta Garbo. She wouldn't go, she wouldn't go. I had to smash her down with a broomstick. Poke her off the windowsill. She fell down onto the pavement with a great crash into the. She just had a nighty on, is that all? That's all she had on, Dad. Just a see-through, a see-through, yeah. shorty nighty, yeah, nothing else, yeah. except for her dark glasses, of yeah. course. <laughs> Independent of its enormous popularity, it was groundbreaking in any number of ways, providing a forum for Cook's alarmingly idiosyncratically brilliant comic imagination, and Moore's antic resourcefulness as a performer. In this series, their comedy was accentuated by their physical contrast. Cook was over six feet tall, Moore only five foot two and a half, and it was through Moore's clowning that gave Cook's more surreal and aloof humour a special human touch. Not only but also ran from 1965 to 1970. 
It was dry, absurd humour that was immensely popular and was an obvious influence on what would follow, such as Monty Python. Here we discovered the duo's alter egos, Pete and Dud. Excuse me, I have an appointment with Dr. Watson for a complete medical checkup. Dr. Watson will see you within four hours. Plan I might not last that long. Sit down, let's get a good seat up the front. I don't know why I want to come here in the first place. You're in perfect physical condition for a person in your physical condition and age. Well, I've never really felt the same ever since Mrs. Woolley made those astrological predictions. You shouldn't take any notice of Mrs. Woolley. She's the only palmist I know who predicts the future by looking at the soles of your feet. Well, she said, your left foot is what you're born with and your right foot is what you make of it. What a load of rubbish, you're born with both feet. You're not just born with your left foot and then the baby has to make his right foot up on the spot. It's a stupid idea. I don't think Mrs. Bully meant it in quite the naively literal way you are intimating, Pete. Oh, in what brilliantly sophisticated and literal way did she mean it in then? What she meant was that your, your, your fate's on your feet. Your fate's on your feet. Yeah. And when she had a look at my left foot, she staggered back. Well, I don't blame her. I think any human being would no, she didn't mean that at all. When she was beating my foot, she had to look at it. She was holding it in her hand. She had those uh, rubber washing up gloves on, you know. Oh, I know them, yeah. Keep it sanitary and all that. And she said, Dad, Dad, your fate's on your feet. And you know what she said? You are not long for this earth. Well, this seems a very fair statement of fact. I mean, whatever your many virtues may be, Dad, and let's not minimise them, Length is not one of them. <laughs> you are not. Let's face it, you are not long for this earth. You're on the short side for this earth. <laughs> Perhaps on another planet you might tower over the extraterrestrial <laughs> beings, but down here, Dad, you are a bit on the short side. Yeah, well, point taken, Pete. <laughs> what I think she meant was that most people's lifelines go from their big toe to the heel, but Mine was cut off in the middle. Well, that's when you trod on that razor blade, wasn't it, in the sitting room? You see, all you have to do is leave one of your rusty old razor blades in, in the living room on the floor and my life is cut in half. But what I think is worse than that is that I think she's put a curse on me. What makes you think that? Well, when she was reading my foot, she's looking at the lines, you know, she tickled my instep and I jumped, you know, because I'm a bit ticklish on, on the feet. And I bunged her up the nose with my big toe. Uh, you think, you think uh, she's holding that against you? Well, I was holding it against her at the time. <laughs> but now I think the situation's drastically reversed. I think she's holding it against me. I think she's, she's put a curse on me. I think she's made an effigy of me. She's sticking pins at my effigy. <laughs> and you think this is the reason why you're getting pains in the chest is she's sticking pins up your effigy? Yeah. Well, if you believe all this mumbo-jumbo, Dad, and let's face it, that's all it is, mumbo-jumbo, if you believe this mumbo-jumbo, all you have to do is make an effigy of Mrs. Woolley, then just before you feel a pain coming on, now this is important, just before you feel the pain coming on... Just before. Just before, yeah. stick a pin in her effigy. If you stick a pin in her effigy first, you won't be able to stick it. You stick before she can stick you, see? Well, I've got better things to do with my time, mate, than stick pins up Mrs. Woolley's effigy all day. Like what, for example? Well, I mean, I'm growing that mustard and cress in the shape of the Union Jack on my flannel. Well, this is a, a very vital part of the Backing Britain movement, I admit, Dad. I suppose she also asked you what star you're born under. Yes, she said, what star you're born under, Dad? So I said, Mickey Rooney. There was Sir Arthur Streeb Griebling. 
We are very pleased to have in the studio tonight one of the very few people in the world, if not the only person in the world, to have spent the major part of his life underwater attempting to teach ravens to fly. <laughs> Good evening. Good evening. We're very pleased to welcome to the studio Sir Arthur Greeb's Streebling. Uh, Streeb Greebling. Oh, I beg your pardon. You're confusing me with Sir Arthur Greeb Streebling. Yes, sir. Uh, Streeb Greebling is my name. Good evening. <laughs> yes. Good, good evening. evening. Thank you very much. <laughs> good evening. <coughs> and good Greebling. Good Greebling in this. <laughs> good evening. Yes. Good um, evening. Good Hello, e fans. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> shut up, Sir Arthur. Um, good evening. Good evening. Sir Arthur, um, could you tell us what first led you to this way of life? Uh, teaching ravens to fly underwater. Yes. Well, it's always very difficult to say what prompts anybody to do anything, let alone getting underwater and teaching ravens to fly, but I think it probably all dates back to a very early age when I was uh, quite a young fellow. My mother, Lady Beryl Street Gribling, you know, the wonderful dancer, 107 tomorrow and still dancing. Uh, she came up to me in the conservatory. I was pruning some walnuts. And she said, uh, Arthur, I wasn't Sir Arthur in those days, she said, uh, Arthur, if you don't get underwater and start teaching ravens to fly, I'll smash your stupid face off. <laughs> and I think it was this that sort of first started my interest mm. in the whole business of uh, yes. getting them underwater. Yes. Mm. Um, how, how old were you then? I was 47. I uh, <laughs> just majored in O-level in forestry. I'd got through there and uh, yes. was looking about for something to do. Yes. Um, where did you stretch your work? Uh, I think it can be said of me that I have never, ever stretched my work. There is one thing I have never done. I can lay my hand on my heart or indeed anybody else's heart and say... I have never stretched my work. Yes. Never stretched at all. I think what you probably want to know is when I started my work. <laughs> uh, Yes, I'm awfully uh, sorry. I did uh, yes. make an error. <laughs> Where did you uh, uh, start your work? Where did I start it? Yes. Well, uh, I started almost immediately. My uh, mother had given me this hint. She's a powerful woman, you know, Lady Bell. <laughs> she can break a swan's wing with a blow of her nose. And the famous one-legged Tarzan sketch. <laughs> Uh, yes, Spigot by name, Spigot by nature. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Spigot, you appear to have forgotten the serious purpose of your visit. If you'd come over here and perch on the chair for a moment, we can talk. Now, uh, Mr. Spigot, uh, you are auditioning, are you not, for the part of Tarzan? Right. <laughs> Mr. Spigot, uh, I couldn't help noticing 
almost at once <laughs> that you are a one-legged person. <laughs> you noticed that? I noticed that, Mr. Spigot, when you've been in the business as long as I <laughs> get to notice these little things almost instinctively. Oh, yes. Now, Mr. Spigot, you, a one-legged man, are applying for the part of Tarzan. Right again. <laughs> a role that is traditionally associated with a two-legged man. <laughs> and yet you, a unidexter, are applying for the role. Right. A role for which two legs would seem to be the minimum requirement. <laughs> well, Mr. Spigot, need I point out to you where your deficiency lies as regards landing the role. Uh, yes, I think you ought to. Uh, need I say, with overmuch emphasis, that it is in the leg division that you are deficient. <laughs> the leg division? The leg division, Mr Spigot. You are deficient in it to the tune of one. <laughs> Your right leg, I like. <laughs> I like your right leg. It's a lovely leg for the role. A lovely leg for the role. I've got nothing against your right leg. The trouble is, neither of you. <laughs> Typical of this era, a cost-conscious BBC decided to wipe the videotapes of the shows. Peter Cook offered to buy the recordings from the BBC, but he was refused due to copyright issues. He even offered to pay for new blank tape so that the shows would not be lost, but this was also turned down. Sadly today, of the 22 original shows, only 8 survive complete, but they're a fascinating glimpse of the comic pair at their peak. There were of course movie appearances for both Pete and Dud. Dudley Moore would famously and surprisingly go on to become a Hollywood sex symbol in the 1980s, with his starring roles in Ten and Arthur. Peter Cook would appear in numerous movies as well, with perhaps his most famous and best-loved role being that of the priest in Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. That's your crown, man. That's your crown. Then love, true love, will follow you forever. So treasure your wife. Skipped the end. Have you the wind? Here comes my Wesley now. Your Wesley is dead. I killed him myself. Then why is there fear behind your eyes? Under you, Princess Barakwa. Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. Escort the bride to the honeymoon suite. I'll be there shortly. He didn't come. But prior to all this, the pair did actually appear in a couple of movies together in the 1960s. And who are you, sir? He is of diminished responsibility, officer. Making their sensational debut on the big screen are those two brilliant satirists of the theatre, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Funny. 
two assassinating young villains with a murderous interest in the Tonti. The Wrong Box, directed in 1966 by Brian Forbes, truly has one of the most remarkable lineups of British acting and comedy talent from the 1960s. Representing the serious side of the acting business are John Mills, Ralph Richardson, Michael Caine, James Villiers and Nanette Newman. And if that wasn't impressive enough, the talent appearing on behalf of the British comedy scene includes Peter Sellers, Tony Hancock, Irene Handel and John Le Mazurier. As well as this, there's appearances from Leonard Rossiter, Nicholas Parsons, Norman Bird and Jeremy Lloyd. And when you throw in John Junkin, Graham Stark, Thorley Waters and David Lodge, well perhaps the only two people missing are Pete and Dud. They appear in this movie as a pair of scheming nephews out to get their uncle's inheritance at any cost. A truly remarkable slice of British film comedy that is sadly not discussed as much as it should be today. for dust and when we arrive miles ahead of the rest everyone will know that our jalopy is best they'll have to admit she's a car you can trust so it's not to call or walk but leap forward to 1969 and the duo appeared in two movies the bed sitting room and monte carlo or bust monte carlo or bust also known as those daring young men in their jaunty jalopies was a British stroke French stroke Italian co-production and a sequel to 1965's Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, boasting another all-star cast including Tony Curtis, Terry Thomas, Gert Frober and Susan Hampshire. It was set in the 1920s and told the story of the Monte Carlo Rally. In the movie, Pete and Dud play British Army officers Major Digby Dawlish and Lieutenant Kit Barrington complete with an outlandish vehicle equipped with all manner of bizarre inventions there to win the race and preserve the honour of the British Empire. Get out the jalopy and polish the wheel She's gonna be the, the king's emperor The king emperor Right, carry on smoking Thank you. I say, Barrington. Good news. More action, sir. Better than that, my entry's been accepted for the Monte. Oh, whiz, whiz, sir. You know what this means? If I win, my inventions will become world famous. Oh, another whiz, whiz, sir. The Dawlish military claxon. <laughs> the Dawlish exhaust extractor combined with tire inflator. With your brilliant brain, sir, I can see absolutely nothing to stop you. Very nicely put, Barrington. Thank you, sir. You realise that when I become a millionaire, there'll always be a job for you? 
At my side. Thank you, sir. In a junior capacity, of course. Of course, sir. I think you know the test. I think so, sir. <coughs> Mr. Best, President! There's no need to shout, Barrington. There's only the two of us in here. <laughs> Sorry, sir. Mr. Best, President, the test is the Monte Carlo Rally. The Monte. 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 Also opened in 1969, The Bed Sitting Room, directed by Richard Lester, with yet another comedic cast to die for. There was Arthur Lowe, Rita Tushingham, Marty Feldman, Michael Horden, Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, Roy Kinnear and Ralph Richardson, no less. Based on the play of the same name, it's an absurd piece of nonsense. Peace in our time. Good evening. I mean that most sincerely. I am the BBC, as you can see. Ah. And here was the last news. This is the third, or is it the fourth, anniversary of the nuclear misunderstanding which led to the Third World War. The very shortest war in living memory, lasting two minutes, 28 seconds, up to and including the signing of the peace treaty, fully blotted. The population of Britain was reduced from 58,746,379 to the 20 survivors who regrouped themselves to rebuild society. Quickly, the familiar patterns of civilization were re-established. But, just as life was returning to normal, people started turning to... <coughs> turning into other things. What is it, darling? Chicken? No, it's Daddy. Get your hand out of my drawers. I'm a mother. I, I think I may turn into a bed sitting room. Ah, ah, that's... that's <coughs> probably atomic mutation. Take three guineas for your rent. With characteristic courage and determination, the entire population dedicated itself to perpetuating the British way of life. God save our gracious queen. Long live our noble queen. God no, no, save our no, queen. No, Send her no, 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 we don't sing that any longer. You don't? No, we, we sing now that God should save Mrs. Ethel Shroke of 393A High Street, Leytonstone. Oh. Of the 20 people who are known to be left alive in England, she stands next in line to the throne. The church. This is the instant God, sir. Alive. Up there. Violence. No, 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 a team of surgeons at the Woolwich Hospital have just accomplished the world's first successful complete body transplant. The donor was the entire population of South Wales. I am forced to ask, have we forgotten the bomb? 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 The bomb. Bomb, bomb, the bomb! I just signed a sir, on that line. God save Mrs. Ethel Shroke. Long live Mrs. 
It's set in post-nuclear holocaust England, and it features a handful of bizarre characters who struggle on with their lives in the ruins amongst endless heaps of ash, piles of broken crockery, dentures and old boots. The story revolves around the odd love story of a girl played by Rita Tushingham who lives with her parents in one compartment of a London underground train. There's the commuter in the next compartment and the doctor they meet after returning above ground in search of a nurse for the heavily pregnant girl. And when I say heavily pregnant, I mean heavily pregnant. She's 17 months. I told you this was just an absurd piece of nonsense. The duo would team up again in the 1970s for their comedic take on the Sherlock Holmes classic The Hound of the Baskervilles, but it's back to 1967, which would see the release of today's review, Bedazzled. And now, this year's most exciting discovery, Drimble Wedge and the Vegetation! Directed by Stanley Donan, who directed, amongst other things, the classic Singing in the Rain, it's based on an idea by Pete and Dud, with the screenplay credit going to Peter Cook himself. A comic parody of Faust. It stars Cook as George Spigot, in actual fact the devil. Dudley Moore plays Stanley Moon, a frustrated short-order chef, who is tempted by the devil, with the promise of gaining his heart's desire. In this case, it's the unattainable beauty and the waitress at his cafe, Margaret Spencer. All this in exchange for his soul. But the devil repeatedly tricks him. Margaret Spencer is here portrayed superbly by the marvellous Eleanor Bron. The film features cameo appearances by Barry Humphreys as Envy and Raquel Welsh as Lust. Dudley Moore composed the soundtrack music and co-wrote the songs performed in the film with Peter Cook. Dudley Moore's jazz trio back Cook on the theme tune, a parodic anti-love song, which Cook delivers in his familiar deadpan monotone. And if you listen closely, you can hear his familiar put-down, You Fill Me With Inertia. An overlooked piece of 60s magic that somehow spawned a completely unnecessary remake starring Brendan Fraser and Liz Hurley. So sit back as we tempt you with our review of Bedazzled. Here's the trailer. I'm not available. But can I? Can I be someone who women women yearn after and crave for and lust after? I can just see you, Stanley. Standing there in your skin-tight pants, the music pounding, the women screaming, Margaret loving the drums. Ladies and gentlemen, we regret to announce that Mr. Stanley Donnan, producer director of such esteemed motion pictures as Charade, Arabesque, and Two for the Road, has sold his soul to these two talented uh, men to make what one critic calls the funniest picture I've seen in ages. <laughs> Sex is a terribly thorny subject, isn't it? I, I think we should get down to basic elements. Do you like feeling things? 
like it in bed? Uh, uh, yes. Good. So do I. This is Stanley Moon. He's selling me his soul. If you were Stanley Moon, would you sell your soul for Margaret Spencer? One cheeseburger, one shanty, one portion French fries. To the devil you would. I'm the haunted one. The devil. Let me give you my card. And what a dirty, rotten, low-down, double-crossing devil he is. Here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. You're a complete failure. Bedazzled is sinful. Your wife has a very beautiful body. Bedazzled is funny. <laughs> Bedazzled may never be shown on television. Although CBS calls it the best comedy around. And NBC thinks it's the thinking man's comedy of the year. Okay, Bedazzled, Stephen. It was released in the USA. I've got a USA release date of the 10th of December, 1967, starring Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Eleanor Bron, and there are some other famous faces who we're obviously probably going to talk about the more we go into this. Directed incredibly by Stanley Donan, who was the director of Singing in the Rain, and the plot. Short Order Cook, Stanley Moon, played by Dudley Moore, longs for the loving touch of fellow employee Margaret Spencer, played by Eleanor Bron, but he's so lacking in self-confidence he can't even muster up the intestinal fortitude to simply talk to her. The hapless Stanley, having returned to his humble flat, decides to end his miserable existence by hanging himself, and he can't even manage that correctly. Perhaps it's just as well, as his suicide attempt goes south, he receives a visit from a tall, glasses-wearing individual, played by Peter Cook, who answers to the name of George Spigot. <laughs> when did you last see this? Three days ago. No, um, <laughs> Before I, that. Um, no, it's been probably five, six years. Oh, right, okay. And you've seen it a fair few times? So, so I think this was my third or fourth watch. So a bit of a fan then, I'll take it. Well, over, over the years, yeah, I, it's... I wouldn't necessarily say it's the, it's the best film out there. It's um, it's it's not a, it's not necessarily a brilliant film. It's got brilliant bits in it. Yeah. It's got some brilliantly witty dialogue, as you would expect from um, Peter Cook, who was the the main writer on it. Yeah. So, and it it does feel to me like I say a lot of the time about the the Sam and Peg things, where you know you've got the Hot Fuzz and and mm. Shaun of the Dead. Where you can rewatch them and you pick up extra bits of clever cleverness that's in there. Yeah. This this has got this has got a couple of layers to it. So when you rewatch it, sometimes you do see something you hadn't noticed. So it it, it does merit a, a rewatch occasionally. Yeah. Second time I've seen it. First time was early days of Channel Four, early nineteen eighties. I think they may have shown it one late Friday night. And the thing that struck me on this viewing is that it doesn't hit the mark quite as often as I remembered it. I remembered it being laugh-out-loud funny all the way through. 
but there's a couple of bits where you think, oh, that actually isn't quite working here, some of the scenes, you know, and it was a bit... They're lucky, in the sense, because it's sort of episodic, because there's the seven wishes that, that Dudley's granted by the devil. They're lucky that they can do seven different sort of scenarios, and Eleanor Bron plays seven different types of Eleanor Bron, and Dudley plays yeah. seven different types of Dudley Moore. And you can see why they've chosen that because not only but also which was their tv series was very sort of like you know monty python in that base that, that it was sketch based you know and and this there's a couple that work really well there's a couple that don't that's that was my first impression watching it again this time around oh there's one two bits that where the the the, the premise of that that wish that episode the is shakier or, or weaker than the others or where they've got to do more work to try and, and get it to to the work, place where they can have the witty lines that they've got planned for it. Yeah. They've got to, um, there, there are a few bits in there of it um, which do show a, a weakness and perhaps it could have done with some overall um, oversight by somebody else with the script to, to actually um, refine it in that, that sense. But because of the really probably the only person that Peter Cook would have listened to about anything was um, Dudley Moore at the True, time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he was, he was an incredibly witty guy, was Peter Cook, with a, a, a very large oh, brain and stuff, God, but a, yeah. certain, a certain amount of um, ego to go with it. Mm. So um, so I imagine it was very difficult for anybody to actually persuade him anything different to what he thought was working. I think I can see why within the context of making the film, why if there's some bits that didn't work, they end up staying in rather than being, being corrected at the time. Yeah, I think some of the funnier bits are the bits in between. Oh, yes, yeah. You know, the actual scenarios, the bits where it's just Pete and Dud together. And you can just see Peter Cook's surreal brain working with certain comments and phrases. I mean, the whole thing about... You know, when he activates each wish, it's it's with the magic words Julie Andrews, for God's sake. You know, it's just <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten that completely and I just burst out laughing as soon as he said it. So incredible. Um we we tend to forget, I mean, the guys were quite big in nineteen sixty seven. There was the Beyond the Fringe in sixty sixty one, which transferred to Broadway. And again we forget that you know the British invasion of the early sixties, we think Beatles, Stones, and then actors like Michael Caine, Julie Christie, Terence Stamp, you know, they had this huge migration over to the States and were huge over there. But these guys actually achieved success as well over in America. You know, we exported a couple of comedians at the same time. Yeah, com comedy often travels less well um, than music um, and obviously acting. Yeah. So it's it's why um, there's pretty much no uh, American TV comedies that are out now that I actually find funny because mm. they're, they're just not funny. <laughs> um, that it, it is harder to transfer over, but yeah, I mean their their reputation, their success. I mean this is this is why they ended up being that of all people, uh, you know, Stanley Dunn and decided to give up the opportunity to do. Um, I can't remember what it was. He 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 gave up the opportunity to do some really big film, it turned out, afterwards. He'd given the opportunity. Oh, right. mm. um, was it Hello, Dolly, or somebody other? Another musical, possibly. Yeah, yeah, Oliver or something. Uh, yeah. yeah, but because he was a massive fan of, of theirs and he was just willing to, to do whatever and take whatever pay it was necessary to do in order to, to work with Pete and Dud. And 
that was that was something he actively was chasing to do. And obviously they grasped it with both hands because of his pedigree. As you said, you know, singing the rain and um he was on, seven seven brides and seven brothers, I think. On well, the town as well, I and, think was yeah. his, yeah. And funny face and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, their their reputation had obviously was big enough and their their fan base was big enough that they could actually get away with doing this. And it is a vehicle just for, for them anyway, so that's why you say that the in between bits of it being just them, mm. they're some of the funniest parts of it I because think so. they, they yeah. are funniest when it's just them two together. I think so. Uh, and they're not trying to shoehorn other people in there. Yeah. I mean, there are you know there are funny bits in the in- intervening the actual episode um, as far as some of the the characters that are talking about some of the the lines that are thrown around, but it's generally not any humour from them interacting with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Even when even when, you know, Dudley Moore's interacting with um like Barry Humphreys. Yes. Uh, is um you know, there's that's not really funny. <laughs> it's it it but you know, when they're when they're playing croquet, um when it's the the that element. Yeah. And there's the other characters around and they're throwing you know, saying their names and all this kind of stuff. If it had been done with anybody else, but because it's them two saying these lines to each other, it just it's funny because the way they they find a way to deliver lines that might not be funny in a funny way to each other. Just the whole thing about the devil being a mischief maker, and and the way that the way he achieves that was by ripping out the last page of an Agatha Christie novel or. Scratching an LP, or what were some of the other things? Well, he, was... he caused he caused an old woman's shopping to fall out the bottom of a bag. Yeah, um, she was set. Um, he set some bees on some hippies having a picnic, <laughs> um, and he it was. Um, oh, the, he um, he pranked Carl, the um, the wife of uh, Fitch from Abercrombie and Fitch. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, incredible. You know, but it, again, it's just this is the thing. Actually, this is what I'm going to bring up. If you go back a year before this, 1966, John Lennon created all manner of hell, for want of a better phrase, with his comments about the Beatles being bigger than Jesus. Yeah. Now, 12 months later, we get a movie that was fairly successful in the USA, where the devil is sort of portrayed as a hero, and the dev- and, and God is the bad guy. Yeah. And and I don't think there was any comeback on it whatsoever. It's it's incredible when you think about, you know, the the fuss that was created by John Lennon's comment, but then you've got this in garish colour, and that's another thing I need to say. The cinematography on this is absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful looking, colourful film. But the subject matter, why wasn't this picked up on at the time? Well, why why wasn't it? You know, because even a few years later on, when you had Life of Brian getting all the kind of yeah. heat, heat um, which, you know, in actual fact, if you look at Life of Brian, you've got a situation where it's it's not about Jesus, because Jesus is actually a separate character in the film, yes. portrayed, portrayed completely, you know, um, respectfully. And then this is, as you say, it's, it's presenting the, the devil as an anti-hero, um, which you know, people can actually find a certain amount of liking for mm-hmm. and, and sympathy for, um, not want to have sympathy for the devil, but um, <laughs> that's, that's that's different entirely. But the, um, yeah, it's, you know, this the petty, the pischievousness sort of maybe was seen as being a way of um, devaluing the, the concept of the, of the devil and not celebrating 
this character has been a, a, a massive, powerful nemesis. It, it was actually putting him down in, in that sense. But if you some of the lines through the actual um, script are subtly mm. a, a knock at religion and God and the devil and Christianity and all sorts. It's, there's, there's various comments in there that just throw away that I'm surprised, like you said, nobody picked up upon and actually made a fuss out of. You know, you, they're saying about you're a nutcase. He's saying at one point, and he's saying, "Oh well, yeah, they said that about Jesus Christ and, and Galileo yeah. and Freud." And, he's, and he says, "And they said it about nutcases too." And he says, "Oh yeah, you're very perceptive there." <laughs> um, and you know, right at the end of the film, he, you know, the last line of the film that the devil, you know, actually delivers, he turns around and says, "You're unbelievable, you are to God." <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Oh, yeah. you know, brilliant! You're, yeah. you're, you're unbelievable, and there's all there's this little little thread in there, which is obviously a, a pop at religion. You know, and, and all you know, trying to get the pigeons. That's one of the other minor um, mischiefs that he has. He's trying, you know, to convince the pigeon to go and poo on somebody. That's it. Um, yeah. And and Dudley, uh, well, uh, Stanley said, "Oh, why why don't you go and get him to to poo on that vicar there?" Yeah. And he goes goes, "Oh no, that would be that would be too much." And he says, "Anyway, that's one of ours." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just. <laughs> the, 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 as you say, it's the, it's those little bits that yeah. lift it over. And if it wasn't for that, then it probably would be a, a, a comedy that would fall too flat. Isn't there but a bit? It's, it's, it's got the rises in there enough. God, yeah. Isn't there a bit where Dudley says, "Can't I be prime minister?" He says, "No, I've already had that position." I've already done that one. Yeah, I've already done that deal. Yeah. <laughs> incredible, absolutely incredible. So the satire is still sort of evident throughout this because that is what Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were known for—that satirical edge you know especially well, with the it, early yeah. years it was it was it was a satire but then also they had just the 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 raw thing you know the Derek and clive of just just them moving away from the satire and just getting into just complete rudeness yeah and then, and you know you've you've got that book is obviously incredibly intelligent and um cerebral in his humor and, and really deadpan with his face and stuff you've got dudley moore with his gurning face and and more sort of accessible humor in in that sense and you know that's why at the end of every wish in order to get out of the wish he's just blowing a raspberry yes exactly yeah it's just incredible it's It's just just childish but but you know cerebral yeah yeah the mix there that probably why they had a good partnership up until a certain point before they end up you know going the separate ways but yeah the the mining of their Previous work has to be done by by most people, I would suggest. Mm. But this, you know, this is a vehicle for them, and that's why, like you said, the best bits of this are the bits where it's them two interacting, yeah, rather than anybody else. It's um, prior to this, they'd appeared in another movie together, which was The Wrong Box, which I think Brian Forbes directed, and it's that big ensemble piece. I think Michael Caine, Nanette Newman's in it, um, Peter Sellers. Um, John Missouri, you know, a whole host of famous British comedy faces. And I, I'm sure they play detectives or something, but they're a double act. And mm. and that was how they were billed, as a double act. And that works really well. I don't think he actually scripted it, Cook scripted that, that role for them. But they work together as a team really well. One of my favourite parts in this, and as I said, there's certain scenes that are sort of hit and miss. Mm. There's the bit where... I think the traffic wardens. That's the other bit of mischief as well, isn't it? It's actually <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> changing click, all the parking click, meters. Yeah, click the, click the fingers and it goes over yeah. to expired. Yeah, but um, 
they reenact what it was like in heaven, and and Peter Cook sits on top of a a, um, a post box, and he says, you know, go on, adore me, just dance around the door. Me and Dudley Moore, there's this little comic yeah. dance around him, and he says, I want to swap places now, and he said, well, so did I at the time, but God wouldn't let me, you know, stuff. Like that. <laughs> yeah. He said I was just being ignored, you know. He said, you know, it just wasn't fun anymore. Cause, you know, it does actually tap into some serious elements of religious history in the Bible. And it tells the story of him being the fallen angel. And, and he's, he's going to be accepted back by God, which is incredible. That's, that's another good scene as well, where he goes back up to heaven and he makes him crawl on his belly and eat dust. We Always had some, dust. Yeah. <laughs> we had some famous faces. Eleanor Bron. Let's, let's talk Eleanor Bron. Previously... I don't think we've actually reviewed it, but she, she was in the... Was it Help, the Beatles movie, wasn't she, with Leo McKern? I'm sure she was in that. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, but this is the perfect vehicle for Eleanor Bron, because we know Eleanor Bron as quite a serious actress rather than a comedian, mm. but she plays, like I say, six or seven different versions of Eleanor Bron or that character that she's playing. It's, it's, it's just a real good showcase for her talents, this film. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and... You know, whether this film was deemed successful or not, I think regardless of that, this was still going to be a film that enabled her to go forward onto future projects and be able to show that there was uh, facets to her acting range. You've mentioned Barry Humphreys, almost like a cameo, because Barry Humphreys, well, Barry Humphreys wasn't really famous. It certainly wasn't Dame Edna Everidge back then. But he was another one that was like, you know, heavy on the satire sort of scene. He was quite big in the 60s for that sort of thing. We had Charles Lloyd Pack playing the vicar, funny enough. Now, Charles Lloyd Pack is the father of Roger Lloyd Pack, who plays Trigger in Only Fools and Horses. And grandfather of Emily Emily Lloyd. Emily Lloyd, yeah. Now, we previously saw Charles Lloyd Pack, I think, in The Man Who Haunted Himself. And I was just sort of looking up some of the stuff that that guy did. He was quite quite big, you know. He, he appeared in a few Hammer Horrors and, and a lot of British dramas and stuff like that. So he would have been a fairly familiar face in this movie. And, and Michael Bates, who plays the detective. Now, Michael Bates was the original cast member of Last of the Summer Wine before Foggy came along. Yes, that brief... Yeah, yeah that brief very first period, yeah. series or two series. But he's also best remembered for, and this always fascinates me, and it does sort of make you wince a little bit when you look at it. He was the guy in It Ain't Half Hot Mum, the Indian guy with the white beard. Was it Randy? Oh, was he? You know, like the narrator, you know, the way he always sort of told the story and he sang the theme tune and all that lot. That was Michael Bates. Oh yeah, wince. You're wincing already. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that 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 character anyway was yeah was wince-worthy, but yeah, of course. Yeah, and I know Michael Bates from um, oh god, years and years he was in the Navy Lark on on radio. But he he was quite a famous face as well. But yeah, the probably best remembered for it ain't half hot mum playing an Indian. So. <laughs> yes, well, um, that there's. There's a certain amount to be able to say about it in our hot moment, so I suppose, yeah. respectively. If, if, um, if Tony but, were here, Tony would, yeah. Tony loves that show. Again, it always fascinates me that Tony, being 23 years old, is actually aware of anything from that era at all. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but it's one of his favourites, actually. So, um, When you mentioned this to me in the last episode, we're going to be 
you know, it to be a, a review today. The first thing I said to you is, oh, is that the one with Raquel Welsh? That's, that's the first thing I remembered. And looking at it this time, she doesn't actually play a significant part in the film at all. No, I think there's the thing that I I recall from um, the trivia about the film that she's she's in it for about seven minutes in total. There you go. Yeah, Lillian um, Lillian Lust, the babe with the bust. Yeah, there, there was a, a apparently anecdotally afterwards um, Peter Cook saying, and I don't know how you know it probably wasn't true knowing him, but him saying that originally they were, they were going to call the film Raquel Welsh. Yes. Um, just so it, the poster would say Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in Raquel Welsh. Um, <laughs> you can imagine their minds thinking. <laughs> yeah, uh, which obviously the studio didn't go for. But how much how serious that was, because that's, that's always the problem with, I think, the humour of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, that you're not sure what is actually genuine humour that there was, you know, they found in something and were actually going to do and what is something mm. they're just making up on the spot just to be entertain themselves in an interview, say. But yeah, Raquel Welsh isn't isn't in it very much um at all yet. Um gets, you know, sort of I think Equal the fourth the fourth, mm. fourth top billion sort yeah. of thing or, or you know, really. Again and, it's it's probably just to make it more appealing to the American audiences, I suppose, that there is a, a, a Hollywood star in the film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been done before, hasn't it? That yeah. they've they um, build people high, and um, it's not to say that people can't do outstanding performances in, in very short appearances in films. Because I mean, um, Silence of the Lambs, Anthony Hopkins, God, the, the yeah. screen time he has is incredibly short, but yeah. and in number of lines delivered. I mean, let's face it, Terminator Two, you know, <laughs> Anna Schwarzenegger delivers fifteen words, I think. Um, exactly. But yeah. but yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't contribute much to the film, and you must—I must admit. But it's know, the first thing I remember. Quite nice, mm, but mm. it—you—you it, you remember her because she's visibly, visibly More you know, nice to, to look at. But really, as far as um, being an integral part of the film, um, she isn't really. No, no. But it was the yeah. first thing that I remembered. I didn't remember anything about the leaping nuns, which I think wasn't that a sketch <laughs> from. Wasn't that a sketch from not only but also. I'm sure yes, they that. did that. So it he's prob- <laughs> probably was. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just didn't remember anything about. Bedazzled. Actually, you saying about it originally was going to be called Raquel Welsh, or you know, humorously they were going to uh, just try and call it that. Do you know where the title actually came from? Bedazzled. No, I don't. It's in the song. I'm sure you know where Peter Cook does this. Um, oh, it's just this very surreal sort of like late sixties pop art sort of um, dirge of a song. I think they're called Dremble Wedge or something they were called. Yeah, yeah. There's a line about being bedazzled in there and it it's, it's just, if you blink and you miss it, almost. Um, and they lifted it from that. Right. Yeah, which again is another yeah. great, another great part because that perfectly captures sort of the Ready Steady Go TV series, exactly how it was, you know, with the... Yeah the cameras visible or the monitors you could see in the background and the kids milling about and stuff like that. It's, it's a, it's a lovely little slice of sixties here. It's a lovely oh, little snapshot. Absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is a, is a, you know, a, an insight into the sixties. Mm. Um, it's very much is, you know, the, the sixties is almost a character and it's, you know, of, of the piece as well. Um, the way the background bits, as you said, the, the, 
the cafes and the, oh. the cars and the buildings, you know, the... the it was a wimpy, and, a wimpy and yeah. a Woolworths. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the when he's um, showing, you know, the records and actually the 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 art, bits of art that there is on the walls and yeah. stuff, stuff like that, that all, all plays in to actually, you know, the, the making use of the period as it is. And it's very much set. That's why I think... A number of reasons why um, it, it wasn't transferable through to being a, a modernised version, or being updated with with you know different actors and actresses. I mean, the, the made a disaster of it anyway. But I don't think it it needed to be remade. It should have just been kept where it was. It's a bizarre choice to remake, isn't it? It's a very strange <laughs> sort of like very strange concept that. They want to remake this fairly obscure '60s movie and update it with Brendan Fraser and is it Elizabeth Hurley, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering. I mean, I have seen it when it very first came out. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, I'm, I haven't recovered. But I'm wondering: is, is it based on the Peter Cook script, or is there any sort of like acknowledgement to Peter Cook for? the idea and the concept of the whole movie. I'm going to have to check this out. Or, or have they just know. literally taken the title and Elizabeth Hurley is the devil that grants seven wishes to Brendan Fraser. That's, that's probably just all it is because I can't, probably, Im- probably, yeah. I, I can't imagine there's leaping nuns or, or cartoon flies on the wall or, you know, that those same sketches are reproduced. I can't remember it at all. Cartoon, fly- cartoon flies that are wearing red socks. They were as well. Yeah. Because- yeah. It's like you're saying about the the colours and stuff, the, the, yeah. the full vibrancy of the colours and stuff. And red does feature very strongly in it. I think they've, they've done, a, Cook. Mm. Um, done a done a certain amount of um, colour coding uh, with with it. Um, maybe not as strong as in some of the other films that me and you have seen, but yeah. in, they have done some colour coding there with the the red. And yeah, the red socks been a a constant feature all the way through. Red nightgown he wears, yeah. the bed hat, yeah. yeah. Um, Stanley Donan, isn't it? You look at the, the Technicolor Marvel that is singing in the rain. You know, <laughs> that is all reds, blues, yellows. It's it's one of the most colourful films you'll ever see. And and it's evident here, you know, his influence is definitely stamped on this movie. Oh, yeah. And and I think, you know, that definitely enhances it. It, it works well with their, um, the humour that has, has been written down by... Um, Peter Cook and his deadpan delivery and stuff, I think it could end up being quite not necessarily, it would still be witty but I think it would be quite flat um, and and not really entertaining in the same sense if it doesn't have that vibrancy to, to carry you through the entire narrative to yeah. be honest, so I think that was you know it was a great fit in the, that sense In sort of conclusion as we sort of wrap this up a wee bit in a second I don't think it's going to appeal to everybody's taste. It's certainly dated, not badly, you know, because I still laughed out loud a fair few times watching this the other night. Um, Favourite line, you know, just again, a a prime example. I I wrote this one down. You realise that suicide's a criminal offence. In less less enlightened times, they'd have hung you for it. Yeah, it's one of the standout ones, (laughs) along with the um, everything I've ever told you is a lie. Uh, including including that. that, including that, <laughs> including what, including that everything I've ever told you is a lie. Oh, 
I don't know what to believe. Not me, Stanley, not me. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> exactly. And it's the yeah. bits in between the sketches. The, the funniest yeah. lines seem to be there. I'm only going to give this three stars, which which to me is, it means I will probably rewatch it again. I did laugh, as I say. It's, it's a great snapshot of the 60s, as we've mentioned. It's a certainly... If if you sort of look deeper into it, there's a vast amount of satire in there and a lot of poking at religion, a lot. Um, and surprisingly, nobody appears to have taken much offence to it. There's, there doesn't seem to have been a great outcry over this movie, which is probably one of the more surprising things about it. But I love the fact that we've also got Peter Cook and Dudley Moore encapsulated in colour on the big screen together doing what they do best because the BBC bloody wiped half of not only but also there's only about four or five episodes of that left yeah um, which is a shame because it was they were the forerunners to Monty Python you know yes. they they were definitely big influences and, and Peter Cook was a national treasure mate no matter you know whether you liked him or not or believed in his politics or his own thoughts and theories the man was a genius. He was this generation's Stephen Fry. You know, he yes. was... Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And sadly missed because his wit was just razor sharp and a lot of that is evident throughout this movie. And and I enjoyed it and I will be watching it again very soon. Absolutely. I can I can concur with all of that. I mean, there's it's a film that... Um, there's not a lot of comedies from the 60s that will still, you know, have bits that will make you laugh out loud, to be honest. A lot of them is it's yeah, especially on a rewatch. So that's that's got that going for it in my mind. Yes, it's not it's not like I said at the beginning, it's not a brilliant film. It's got brilliant bits in it, yes. but it's not in itself a brilliant film. I think it's worth seeing. I don't think it's necessarily worth going out your way for. Mm-hmm. So keep it's more a keep your eye out for it okay. and then actually um give it a go when when you have chance to mm-hmm. because it's it it's it's worth inclusion because of, like you said, the whole Peter Cook and Dudley Moore in actually capturing their genius and their double act, you yeah. know, which is one of the best double acts that there was, the way they, they played off each other. And But really, it's like you say, it's not just because of the 60s element and how it encapsulated that and caught that, but it is very British yes. as a film, which, you know, inclusion in, in this podcast is... is uh, <laughs> incredibly viable yes, it's been a very perfect. British film absolutely mm. it's, it's, it's achingly British in some ways to be perfectly <laughs> honest yeah. um, showing different sensibilities of different levels of, of society in, in some ways which is why Dudley Moore's accent changes of each, you know, with each different wish. He's got a different accent that he puts on, including Welsh and probably yes. posh and, and yeah. more co- common and stuff. But um, definitely don't be put off that by having seen the remake and that maybe <laughs> falling falling flat because this is this is the original and this is is the better version. Yeah, it's it's not perfect. It's got it's got lines that will stay with you and, and keep you laughing. So give it a go um, if you have the opportunity to. That's definitely what I would recommend. Excellent. We're going to take a short break and be back with what we're watching next time. Julie Andrews. Okay, next time 
as we rapidly head towards Halloween, as we mentioned earlier. Um, I've got a horror for you, but it's a light-hearted horror. We're going back to 1973. Listen to nice. this. Right, listen to this cast list. You've got Diana Dawes, Eric Sykes, Madeline Smith, Milo O'Shea, Dennis Price, Robert Morley. Arthur Lowe, Michael Horden, Jack Hawkins, Harry Andrews, Ian Hendry. And starring Vincent Price and Diana Rigg, we're going to do Theatre of Blood. Wow. <laughs> Have you seen it? A long time ago, yes. Yes. Um, uh, let's, yes, let's go for that, yeah. Just for that cast alone, I think we need to talk about this movie. Um, it's not a Hammer production, but it could have been. Um yeah, incredible. Incredible film. I haven't seen it for a while. I picked it up on Blu-ray the other day. There's a marvellous remastering of it, um, given the full loving treatment that it deserves. So I'm looking forward to that, and we'll try and get that one out before Halloween hits home. So, Oof, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a thing. Yes. Right. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to, uh, to watching that. Well. Excellent. Okay, Stephen, thank you very much, sir, for being part of Real Britannia once again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. This and previous episodes can be found on our website, realbritannia.libsyn.com. Also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Acast, We Heart Radio, Podcast Party, anywhere you get your podcasts, we're out there. You can follow us on Twitter at rbritanniapod. Send us your emails. Emails and mp3s to realbritannia at gmail.com. We will read them out. And there is a Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash rbritanniapod. Stephen, looking forward to next time, sir. Thank you once again. My pleasure. See you very soon. Will do, mate. Cheers, matey. Bye-bye. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.